0: Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell,
1: author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm V.B. Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. Sugi! AWP comes to my hometown and you just totally
0: blow it off. I don't understand.
1: I had to go to my hometown, Um, but I was
0: (laughs) that seems like a good answer.
1: (laughs) I was, um, you know, I think it's it's a testament to what a good conference AWP is that I was like genuinely like Sri Lanka, AWP, Sri Lanka, AWP. Um, So tell me about the good stuff. What happened?
0: The big, tremendous gossip of the conference was that they
1: lost the tote bags. Oh, I heard about this, actually. (laughs) There, you, there you go. It actually is the real dish. And my uh, school
0: was sponsoring, so we'd spent all of this money and were on the tote bag, which we were very excited about. And then, oh no! Yeah, I've got four though. I found I went today actually early, and I made they, they had like four hundred or something, and I got four of those four hundred. So I've I have four twenty five hundred dollar tote bags in my house. <laughs> Good times. <laughs>
1: But Anything it was fun. About? It was fun to see
0: everyone. The panels were good. Um, I was on a couple that I, th- I really enjoyed and um, we did, we did one on podcasting and we did one that you were supposed to be on that you weren't there for. And then I did another one with the
1: writers from Kansas city and Tulsa, which I thought was really great. That was organized by real ask you. That's awesome. Um, I heard that there were some panels about Ukraine. Uh, I'm sure there were. Yes. I mean, you know, the, the, I've been
0: following the war. I feel like American interest in the war is down significantly, you know, but it, it's only two years ago that, that this war started.
1: Yeah. I, do you remember, like, we did that episode with um, Anton Trinovsky, the Moscow Bureau Chief of the New York Times, and, and Marcy Shore, who's a historian from Yale, and it was about, like, if there will be a Russian invasion of Ukraine, we've never had such a pression episode, and I really wish that had been wrong. Anyway, it seems like forever ago, but it is two years, and now Congress is debating an emergency aid bill that includes about $60 billion for Ukraine. Um, I'm always like, when you round and it's in the billions, I'm like, what? Um, anyway, so we're taping this a Sunday morning, my time, because I'm in Sri Lanka, and Saturday night, Witt's time, February 10th, and senators are working on this bill this weekend and trying to come to an agreement about it.
0: Given this sort of political pivotal political moment we wanted to bring an old friend with some expertise back to the show to discuss what it means and how things stand in ukraine at this moment so we're thrilled today to be joined by the novelist matt gallagher
1: matt gallagher is the author of the novels empire city and young blood a finalist for the dayton literary peace prize his work has appeared in esquire espn the new york times the paris review and wired among other places He's also the author of the Iraq War memoir, Kaboom, and editor of and contributor to the short fiction collection Fire and Forget, short stories from the long war. His new novel, Daybreak, which is out Tuesday, is set in Ukraine. Matt, welcome back to the show. Thanks
2: so much. It's, it's great to be back with you all.
1: Thanks for being here. Uh, I, you were like on like our second
0: episode or very early on in the in the show. So it's a nice callback and
2: you've been on since. Yeah, I think I think the first, I think uh, it was we discussed Kaepernick and uh, uh, kneeling with the American flag. So that's right. it, it, ha- it it has been a few years.
1: You were actually like the original guest. Um, was it the first show? I was like the that's it was like, this that's, that okay. that's that's the first episode. It was like Matt and Britt Bennett um, oh, talking right. about Colin Kaepernick. That's right. Like, yeah. Yeah, and like um, still a good episode. And yeah, we will we will link to it in our show notes. Um, and Matt, you you might ha- you might actually be holding the record now for um, for for a return guest.
0: <laughs> the Niners would be a hell of a lot better with uh, Kaepernick playing quarterback uh, than Purdy. It's my personal view. With the views the Chiefs tomorrow,
2: I am I am with you 100. percent I, I might be America's foremost Brock, uh, Brock Purdy hater, and uh, <laughs> it, it's it's caused great consternation on my my chat with my old high school friends who are mostly Niners fans, but. I'm cutting all
1: of this at the chief's list. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Matt, as our regular listeners know, you're a veteran of the Iraq War and a journalist in addition to being a novelist. And after Russia invaded Ukraine two years ago, you went there to write about it for Esquire. You published a few pieces. You've you've written essays about it and published those elsewhere as well. And you're in touch with people on the ground there now. So just as kind of a starting point, we want to give our listeners a little bit of a lay of the land What is the situation for the Ukrainian military and Ukrainian civilians now?
2: There's a kind of grim resolve, I would say, that has settled in. It's uh, very clear both to the civilian population and certainly the military that, uh, you know, there's no white knight that's gonna come charging across the border to save them. That uh, two years in, any kind of support they're getting both from the states and their European allies is going to be conditional and often in increments, uh, smaller increments than they would prefer and need. And there's a real sense of betrayal, to be frank. Um, that uh, you know, the, the headlines globally two years ago, you know, support Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian flags on kind of every Twitter bio, every social media account. Well, what does that really mean? And and here we are. Two years in which is maybe not that long in the grand scheme of things um, and they, they feel they feel largely alone with perhaps the exception of Poland and the Baltic states who are not coincidentally uh, border states with Russia uh, who are still kind of full throttle support um, as, as much as they can uh, that said you know so that's the grim part of it the result part of it is and I, I do think this is kind of hard for Americans to wrap their heads around. This is not a choice. This is the, you know the, the they've seen the cities like Mariupol and in the east um, be completely razed by Russia. Uh, they've seen Ukrainian children taken from families and sent to cultural reeducation camps in Russia. Uh, th- this is not this is not like many American wars that we're familiar with. I, we we tend to view this concept through it's a it's a war for survival and so they're dug in they you know from from Lviv in the west all the way out uh uh, to to Kharkiv and Kirsan in the east they're in it for the long haul and and they're fighting for their survival but they're increasingly understanding that this is a battle that they're going to be fighting on their own and and it comes with a lot of ugly ugly thoughts and ugly emotions particularly after the kind of the start of this war when you know they were the world's darling for for a few months at least
1: i'm i guess when you say ugly emotions do you mean like if you're an american there in ukraine now that that's something you personally hear that people are angry at you or on behalf of the country
2: oh very much you know even amongst friends uh you know they, they don't necessarily accuse me or, or, or my photographer, Benjamin Bush, because we've been there so many times now. We know them. But they'll ask, is America willing to fight Russia till the last dead Ukrainian? And it's a very pointed question. And it, the first time I heard it, I thought it was ridiculous. And the longer this drags out and, and the more I see how our government conducts itself, I'm not sure it is so ridiculous. And then, you, you know, you have encounters um, with people who don't know you, and uh, uh, they're, they're, they're weird. They're strange. I, and I'm thinking particularly on, on our last trip, we were eating dinner in Odessa. Uh, so we kind of finished our, our trip to the front. The, the sense of real palpable danger had, had for, for us at least, for my little team of myself, my photographer, and, and our interpreter, uh, had kind of passed. And you know, Odessa was relatively... Safe, uh, you know, under threat of cruise missiles and artillery, but, but life was was normal. Street life was was active. We went to a restaurant, and of course, the table next to us are are soldiers uh, drinking heavily uh, on leave. They hear us speaking American English, and in their in their minds, we are CIA. We are envoys of the Biden administration we are Navy seals all, all, all these things at once um, you know I we can't just be simple journalists right it, 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 they need they need us to be something more and you know to be to be frank it, it's it's a very difficult thing to look at somebody in the eye begging you for modern equipment a modern rifle a modern helmet and you know I'm looking they' These are men and young men in their 20s and 30s. The the one in particular that I'm remembering was a a car mechanic before the war broke out. And he's convinced he's going to die. And the fact that he has happened to sit next to Americans eating dinner uh, might be the most fortuitous thing that has happened to him in the last decade. And he is convinced if he can just convince me that this is real, that this matters, that I can put in a call to President Biden himself. And, and I, I don't there's no there's no good an, ending to this story, right? We they, we had to get away from like we had to get away from it. It was it was dark and uncomfortable. Um, you know, I think our interpreter gave gave him a fake number. Um, but, you know, the, 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 these are rough men willing to do violence in, in defense of their nation. And uh, I don't know, it, it's lingered with me, obviously. Um, I, I wish I wished I had some kind of clo- closure or ending to that story, but but it stuck. It stuck with me for a reason because I, and I think it's relevant to your question.
0: Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. It's interesting to me that you say the way you're framing this because it, it is. Uh, the Ukrainian perspective is that the Biden administration has not done as much as they would like for them to do. But from looking from this perspective, the Biden administration seems the only people who are in America who are actually interested. I mean, at least the Democrats seem supportive of su- supplying Ukraine, whereas there is a faction of the country in the Republican Party that wants to stop this entirely. I guess Ukrainians don't understand that difference or care maybe
2: it's it's what they know i think right like they've lived uh the the past few years with the biden administration from their perspective and it's one i i I personally agree with kind of supplying half measures trying to kind of overmanage the war i mean there there was a a a real window in um, the autumn of 2022 when they were making incredible advances before the russian uh, uh, defenses had set in with the minefields in particular, where, uh, you know, had we given them the kind of long-range missiles uh, and artillery that they'd been requesting, more gains could have been made, right? So that's what they, they point to. It is hard to convey the unknown. The, you know, uh, I haven't talked to them since uh, Tucker Carlson's interview with Putin or uh, former President Trump's insane rambling today. Uh, about how he would let Russia invade na- even NATO countries, so you know there is kind of like a a superficial awareness that this is better than the alternative, but it, it, it's just it's it's hard to dismiss the the lived experience. Of um, these if you
1: if you're turning into YouTube, you can see my face upon learning that Trump said that today because I was asleep during the American daytime and I'm like, what? Can't even fucking. S- can't even fucking sleep in that. Guys says no. this. Well, well, welcome welcome um, back to
2: the the Trump is politician news cycle, which is you miss one hour uh, and something <laughs> something insane again.
0: You just published an op-ed in the Boston Globe arguing that the U.S. should continue to fund Ukraine's self-defense, stating that this isn't a forever war. In that piece, you note that the term "forever war" is, is quote lifted from a 1974 science fiction novel and became a type of catch-all during the latter half of the War on Terror, a way to neatly refer to Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and beyond without getting bogged down in the particulars. So, why does that term important to understand and how, and why does it not apply to what's happening in Ukraine?
2: Yeah, no, it's a good question, Witt. Uh, so, it comes from a 1974 science fiction novel written by Joe Haldeman, who himself was a Vietnam veteran, and uh, then it was kind of recycled in a Really great book in I think two thousand six, two thousand seven, a nonfiction book about Iraq, written by uh, the New Yorker writer Dexter Filkins, and and it makes sense from kind of an American perspective, right? Like uh, war is someplace we go elsewhere. By and large, in the last fifty, sixty years, it's been these have been wars of choice. These have been kind of futile, futile imperial adventures where we have been humbled, but nobody has suffered other than uh, American taxpayers, American soldiers, and certainly the local populations tremendously, right? And these experiences have and should influence the way we as citizens think about foreign war. I get it, I'm not a hawk. I hope anybody familiar with with my work knows that. Uh, I've written some terrible things that I stand by about the military industrial complex. All that said, sometimes in the world necessary wars occur right not not good wars but necessary wars and i think anybody who's had a 5 minute 10 minute conversation with a ukrainian or a ukrainian american understands that this is this is one of those right all you, all you have to do is is watch a little bit of the tucker tucker carlson interview with vladimir putin uh, the other day or or just listen to things that putin have has said or read before. He does not believe Ukraine should exist. He believes it's a fake country. He wants to smash out the language. He wants to smash out the culture. Um, yeah, and this, this is this didn't arise from him. This is an old you know, Soviet. Stalin did the same thing. You know, it, it goes goes way way back. There's a culture and a history here um, that is very real, and and I worry tremendously that as Americans, we're so used to kind of viewing war through this kind of forever war prism, right? Where war is a choice, um, where in the modern era, volunteer soldiers can choose to go and fight and kill and die. Uh, That we're not, we're forgetting things like Ukrainian agency, that we're we're forgetting that uh, peace does not mean an end of armed conflict, right? Like if, if we've let, let's say America and the EU stop supporting Ukraine tomorrow, right? Um, and uh, Ukrainian, the Ukrainian military gets, gets overwhelmed. That's not the beginning of peace. If anything, that's the great, the, the, the start of even more horror, right? Uh, cities will be completely razed, uh, uh, gen- I mean, Genocide will occur in, 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 in the actual definition of the term. So if you believe in peace, if you seek peace, you have to at, at the very don't listen to me I'm, you know, I'm just an Amer- you know, I'm an American writer, and you can think whatever you want about me, but actually listen to what Ukrainians are saying, uh, and not just you, you know mouthpieces, right like not, not, not politicians, not Zelensky, um, not, not his PR team. Talk to some of the people I've met uh, or, or, you know, any, any kind of journalists, East, people in eastern Ukraine, the kind of people that Putin says he's saving, he's rescuing, who want to be part of Russian society, who are, ne- you know, who have lost grandsons, who have lost neighbors in this war and are now full-throated Ukrainian in a way they weren't three years ago. Just, just have a little intellectual humility and stop viewing everything through our American prism And maybe, maybe you'll reconsider why this war is happening and and why it needs to be supported.
1: So, um, yeah, so much of what you're saying is fascinating, because it's translated in a really interesting way to, to your novel, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But um, like, there is a character who who gives a speech that's sort of along the lines of what you were just saying. So we were talking about, you know, kind of, like equipment shortages and, and things. And one of the things I was reading about was that Ukraine is specifically facing an ammunition shortage. And last year, like Russia was facing, or sorry, I guess, yeah, last year, 2023, Russia was facing an equipment shortage. So it's like, interesting that both sides are having this at like different moments. At the top of the show, we were talking about the emergency aid bills being discussed in the Senate. Presumably, this the Senate is working on this weekend. Um, I don't know that I have much faith that politicians are working in any real way, but they're talking about sending $60 billion to Ukraine. This is like Tagged to a bill that also has emergency aid for Israel in it. Can you talk about how this money would change things for Ukraine and the conversation in Ukraine around the equipment shortages and US aid?
2: Sure. Yeah, I, I, I sometimes worry that because of the, I mean, it makes total sense that, that these aid packages get tagged with kind of specific numbers. But, you know, if you delve into what, what it means, it's not just money, right? It, like, uh, uh, there's this. I, you know, we're not sending Zelensky a 61, uh, a $61 billion check uh, with this particular package. It, uh, uh, if it gets through, you know, about one third of that actually is to restock uh, American defense contractors that, that have already um, sold uh, uh, weapons and artillery and air defense uh, equipment uh, to Ukraine. So when I see Republicans in particular pushing back on this suddenly being against uh american defense uh contracting um i am just baffled I'm, I'm baffled by the po- like domestic politics of this i think 15 to 20 million uh will go uh, is is money uh going to ukraine to be able to purchase uh defense equipment from your other european allies right so it's, it's almost kind of a a bonus to the eu um Package that was passed last week that is going towards Ukraine. Some of it has nothing to do with with war or weapons. Uh, a, 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 I believe about half a billion of this package goes directly to internally displaced Ukrainians. Right is 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 is, is earmarked specifically to help Eastern Ukrainians who have had to flee to or, to Kiev in the center or the western regions of the country uh, to escape to escape th- all this. Right. So e- even the most humanitarian anti-war person on the planet whether on the hard left or the hard right should I, I would think would, would believe hey that's taxpayer money that's 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 going someplace real and meaningful so it's 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 frustrating sometimes that, that this can be framed simply as, as, as a money thing uh, but you know the money that goes to the weapons is very real uh, in the op-ed that that wit mentioned I make note of the fact that you know Russians are, are firing about 10 artillery shells for every one the Ukrainians now manage. It's a huge part of the war. Uh, every, every Western vet that I've interviewed over there that, that served in Iraq or Afghanistan cannot stop talking about the difference of what sky, weapons from the sky mean, particularly heavy artillery, but also drone bombs and, and how different that is than what, what my generation of American soldiers experienced. Uh, air defense weapons is, is another aspect of this. Uh, the Interceptors in particular have been uh, very successful protecting the big cities in Ukraine, Kiev and Odessa, Lviv out west. Um, you know, these, these are protecting innocent civilians from random r- Russian missiles. I- unless you're living under a rock, you have to realize that the Russians have zero interest in targeting only military targets. Uh, I've walked through the wreckage myself, uh, a great Ukrainian young woman named Victoria Amolina, who's a Ukrainian writer, happened to be eating in the wrong pizzeria at the wrong time last summer, uh, and, and was killed, a, a complete war crime, a complete war crime. Fan- I mean, innocent families going out to dinner, uh, uh, nowhere near a barracks, nowhere near a base, nowhere near an artillery position, a Ukrainian mil- art- artillery position this is what this money is going to, it is, is, is not helping Ukrainian military advance so much as it is helping Ukrainian su- society survive and endure. Uh, these are real people's lives. Uh, this, is, this is a real culture, this is a real society. And, and I, I don't know, I wish, I wish more of that was kind of being injected in this conversation and if nothing else, it would force some of the detractors and skeptics of of our support to confront the reality of, of, of what they're naysaying.
0: Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. It's interesting to me because I... I think a lot about, like, how the myth of war or what war means to Americans, like, changes over time, right? And so I, you know, once wrote an essay for The New Republic about war movies. And and I was pointing – one of my arguments was that the rise of, like, pro-World War II movies, like, that that glorified the the greatest generation – uh, movies like Saving Private Ryan, but also The Greatest Generation. Wasn't that a movie? Or at least it was Brokaw's book. Wasn't that made into a movie? Um, right. TV show. And a so TV show, I think. Those yeah. types of wars, those types of movies and, and films in the 90s made it much easier for George Bush to go to war in Iraq because people thought that it was this glorious thing with great purpose. And unfortunately, that did not turn out to be true in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, and yet this is the war. Right, that most resembles World War II, where you have a clearly fascist, totalitarian dictator on the other side, and you have a democratic society that's resisting him. And, you know, he's murdering civilians and torturing people and doing terrible things that we know are happening. And it seems like that is, if there's anything at all that, you know, America is just, maybe we just got worn out by being in so many stupid wars since World War Two, that we can't actually recognize that this is something resembling that.
2: Yes, uh, I, I, that, first of all, that that essay that you wrote from the New Republic was excellent. Um, I, I, I remember it, uh, and I, I think you're on to something. Like, um, w- what's the one thing that unites all of this? Is kind of American hubris, right? That the idea that, uh, gosh, it's been over twenty years now, but that we could we would go go to these countries, take out. A dictator uh and and established democracy from the top down in the name of freedom insane (laughs) genuinely insane looking back on it uh and then 20 years later uh you know for for very good reasons uh american people are skeptical uh the american people are uh some of whom had direct connections to those wars and feel betrayed by our government and, and and by the defense complex are wondering why this is any different and i, I just it, it takes intellectual humility to just take a step back and consider how and why it is uh because otherwise you're, su- you're you're falling under the same kind of hubristic uh tendency that you condemned george bush for right like viewing believing that uh ukraine is 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 that the Maidan uprising, and social uprising in 2013 was a CIA plot is just as full of American hubris as George Bush was back in, back in 03 thinking that, uh, or Donald Rumsfeld was thinking that it would be a short war in Iraq and that we wouldn't, there, there wouldn't be any kind of insurgency, right? Uh, don't get me wrong. Ukraine is a flawed country, right? Uh, it's, it's been trying through fits and starts since it gained independence in 1991 to, to kind of purge itself of its demons. Uh, the, the corruption issues that have made international news are real, but it's been making incre- incremental progress. You know, Every five to ten years, the country has had an internal social protest movement trying to become more democratic, trying to become more part of Europe. This is, this is not the propping up of a democracy from the top down. This is, this is the defensive one, and it's flawed. But guess what? So is ours. All you have to do is pick up a newspaper and realize we, you know, we, we, we should not be proclaiming down at anybody about uh, a complicated population trying to figure it out. Uh, I, I just, I don't know, I, I, it, it's frustrating to me because I, I have friends across the political spectrum that I ask consistently, sometimes more politely than others, uh, 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 more, more politely than other times, Just take a step back and consider this from a ukrainian perspective and consider like just take a look at their history and realize like they want what we have or they want they want what we they think we have and like here's an actual opportunity for america to be what we always proclaim to be what we always aspire to be it's been and we're going to drop the ball i it's it's i don't i i i've never been more patriotic than when i was over there Talking to everyday Ukrainians about what they think America is, and I've been—I don't know if I even, even after my experience in Iraq, man, I, I don't think I've ever been more dispirited about what my country actually is than watching what we're doing to Ukraine right now.
1: So, Matt, we've been alluding to your your new novel, Daybreak, which it which really reflects um, these some of these experiences and ideas and arguments that you're talking about in the form, of course, of um, characters, including the 33-year-old Army veteran, uh, Luke Paxton, uh, a.k.a. Pax, who goes to Ukraine, not exactly to fight, but kind of like to, to help, as he says. He's kind of struggling to articulate um, why he's there. You went to Ukraine yourself and trained civilians in combat and survival skills And in an op-ed for the New York Times that you wrote like maybe a little bit after. You kind of cautioned veterans and others interested in going to have a clear sense of how they plan to help. How did you find your way from your own experience and kind of that argument to the character of Pax and his motivations?
2: Sure. So, you know, Luke Paxton and his colleague Han Lee, who he goes over with, uh, are very much informed by the type of veteran I met over there who did not uh, heed my op-eds call. And we're going to help. And, you know, there's something tremendously brave about that. But uh, there's also something deeply flawed about this. That right? These are these are complicated, messed up, uh, flawed people in many ways. It is not a normal thing to be able to take off from your regular life and go to a war zone on a whim. Uh, I say that with uh, some hypocrisy, perhaps. But uh, I I was just kind of fascinated by the dichotomy of. The physical and moral courage of what they were doing um, in pursuing the defense of an ideal and an idea, but also the kind of the hard reality that these are messed up people in some cases with real dark, murky pasts who maybe haven't thought through the potential ramifications of what they're doing and the long term consequences of that, not just on themselves but on on Ukraine, on their families back home, uh, uh, etc., and you know, fiction. No, nothing's better than kind of exploring the murky greys uh, of existence than, than fiction. So, putting you know, put, putting putting some of these men and women that I'd met over there into characters for this book, it, it, I don't know, just made all the sense in the world.
0: Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back.
1: Would you
2: read a little bit from the novel for us? Oh, I'd be, I'd be glad to. Sure. Um, I'm going to read from a couple pages. It's uh, early in the book in Chapter 2. And what has happened is uh, uh, Han Lee has been accepted into the International Legion by a Ukrainian military recruiter. But because of his murky past and, and, and his kind of very visible uh, post-traumatic stress, uh, Pax has been, been rejected. So he is kind of simultaneously coming to terms with his failures uh, as a soldier in the past and also kind of what he perceives to be his failures as a man in the present. And he's quite literally stumbling around a city uh, and country that he he doesn't know, he doesn't understand. He's about as lost of a soul as you can get. And then the air raid siren goes off because Russian bomber, bombers are en route. The witch wail of a siren cut through the city, strident, demanding. Pax hesitated under a naked chestnut tree along the wide pathway, while people separated from the crowd piecemeal. Some running, others trotting out, all moving with intent. raid, the passing voice said to him, and he thought, "'Oh, wow, but also, am I that obvious?' Most bodies were streaming for a block of stairs that led down to something like an underpass. Pax began hurrying that way, his hands trembling and his skin rising with goosebumps. In Afghanistan, they controlled the sky, as always. This was totally different. What, he thought, could be up there? He looked and tried to see, but there was only more gray. Nearing the Virgin Mary statue, Pax saw that not everyone had sought cover. Some Ukrainians had made the choice of nothing. A babushka shuffled along the pathway with an unbothered grimness. A group of teens in emo makeup lingered around the monument of black slab, performatively sharing a blunt. And a street artist, the same one he'd seen earlier, sat on a bench, legs crossed, blinking away at the day. She noticed Pax and lifted her sketchpad at him. Despite himself, despite everything, he took a seat on the adjacent bench. The artist was sallow and gray, 60 or so, wearing a waxed jacket and a black knit cap on her head, half cocked. Her fingers were covered in tattoos and she said something to Pax he didn't understand. He said, no, then asked, English? The woman rolled her eyes and said something else he didn't understand. Then she began sketching. Pax focused as much as he could on being normal he took long breaths to steady himself and adjusted his headband for the drawing he listened to the thump of his heart and the insistence of the siren fuck he thought looking up at the opaque sky again what's fucking up there the artist barked at him probably with a curse he thought and he returned his attention to ground level what did lee said about profanity sometimes it's the only expression of human decency left to us Fuck, Pax thought again, nothing about this feels decent. What is up there? He slid his prayer beads from his wrist and clasped them between his hands like jewels. The siren kept wailing, and he kept rubbing one bead over and over, feeling its chipped turquoise paint with a fingertip. It calmed him as he knew it would. Sometimes, always when he'd been drinking, usually when trying to impress a woman, Pax would say the beads had been a gift from an Afghan child. A boy he'd become friends with, the son of a respected elder, an ally, a man just like him who wanted dignity and purpose, and to leave the earth a little bit better than he'd found it. He not given the boy a name, Ali, and Ali was a mischievous sort, peddling the Americans' DVDs and cigarettes and markup. He was a good kid, though, a good kid. Part of a new generation of afghans who grew up knowing freedom and democracy and all those other fancy words that sound hollow to people who already have them but mean so much to those who don't it was a lie though all of it a figment twisted up by some demented corner of his brain a harmless one pax thought most mornings after but stupid something i shouldn't do anymore most of the afghan children his platoon encountered either screamed for chocolate or fled in the valley over from them Navy SEALs had wasted some civilians, and word had got around. He'd found the beads in the dirt during a patrol through some know-nothing mountain village. Then he'd stuck them in his pocket without bothering to look and see if they might belong to one of the locals watching them from the windows of their mud huts. He'd brought the beads back to the American outpost and cleaned them under canteen water to have a war trophy, to have something that proved he'd gone and done something exceptional. It was only years later driving home from a bar through empty dark, that he considered the possibility that someone else far across the globe, someone who'd watched the act through a window, maybe believed he'd stolen the beads, and then he maybe believed he had. The raid siren strangled out halfway through its pitch, replaced by the stun of its absence. Pax held his pose for the artist, realizing his internal dread from earlier had been overtaken by a more corporal dull ache. Which is good, he thought. I can deal with this. People were trickling back to the pathway. As the artist clucked to herself and began erasing something hard, a shape appeared to his side. It was a girl, brown hair, flat brow, wearing a large man's coat down to her knees, her fingers poking out of a rolled back cuffs like little sausages. Her hair was greasy and matted, and she smelled of stale urine. "'Hello,' Pax said. She replied in Ukrainian and put out her arms like a plane, lips rumbling to make an engine noise. Only then did he recognize her. She'd bumped into him earlier on the pathway. "'Ooga-booga,' he tried again, and this time she grinned wide. A set of crooked teeth splayed out, a not-insignificant gap along the top row Despite her appearance, she carried herself with an air of pomposity. Pax guessed her to be about 11. With her head, she gestured toward her clas- towards his clasped hands. Want to see? He opened his palms so she could view the prayer beads. The girl stepped forward, her tiny eyes not on the beads at all, but pressing on him, looking at Pax in such a way that made him feel like she was staring through him. Into all the moral insecurity that growing up in a free country can instill. Then came the sting of a slap across his face. As he winced, he felt his hands empty. Holding his jaw, Pax looked up. The child was running away from the bench with a second girl, older, bow-legged, their prayer beads in her grip.
0: Thank you very much. Sure thing. Pax and his friend... Han Lee uh, were in the 173rd Airborne together in Afghanistan, you know, and now they they go together to do this trip and end up, you know, they're separated. And it's, as you as you pointed out, as you mentioned earlier, Lee in particular, he's there because he wants to kill without feeling guilt. I don't know is that a fair gloss on what his his motivations are. But what but what about Pax? I mean, it's interesting to me, you know, like I'm I'm very curious. And I was look, I was I said on this podcast that I was nervous when I heard that you were going over there, like. You know, I, I feel like it's diff I underst I intuitively understand why American soldiers would go there, sometimes for the reasons that I was talking about in the prior statement. Like this is the kind of war that I think a lot of soldiers would have preferred to be in than the one that they ended up getting to fight in. Is that what PAC- is motivating Pax or is it something else? I mean, how do you how do you conceive of his inner want
2: here? It's part of it. You know, one of the recurring questions in the novel uh, posed, posed to them by many ver- uh, various Ukrainians is, why are you here? And that was a question we faced, uh, particularly when we went over as volunteers. Um, we had a kind of a clean, direct answer, which is to help train civilians. And that, that you know, we're, we're here for three to four weeks and then we're going home. Um, and that seemed to satisfy most people. Um, Han Lee has a very clear, direct answer that seems to satisfy most people, which is, I'm, I'm here to kill Russians. Uh, it's kind of messed up in some ways, but when your country's under threat, and particularly when you're a Ukrainian military recruiter, that is what you want to hear. Pax, almost to his detriment, is honest. He's not quite sure. He's figuring that out, I think, on most pages of this book. Maybe, maybe until really kind of the last chapter. He wants to help, but he doesn't know how. And I think what you just said, with is exactly why he's there, is that I think Pax is a decent, decent human being that maybe doesn't have, uh, hasn't figured it all out. That, that, you know, a messed up, unnecessary, flawed war turned him into a, a messed up, flawed human being, and he's still sorting through I mean, that. he's
0: been damaged, you know? The, I mean, those prayer beads that are in that passage that you read, you know, those, those are his war memento, but that actually are the, are an expression of his war trauma, you know? I mean, the, 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 the way that he, that, he, that he is shell-shocked, to use an older term.
2: He's stuck there. Uh, unlike one of the, the key things that I wanted to show with the difference between him and Svetlana, uh, they'd been lovers ten years before. She's moved on. Uh, this current war.
0: Svetlana, is, you, you, we haven't talked about her yet. So this sure. is a woman that he has met. This is Ukrainian, yes, a Ukrainian he's woman. He's hoping
2: to see. Correct. Yeah, she she has moved on. She's a mother now. She's lived a life. The the current war is threatened to trap her in the same way that the Afghanistan war trapped Paxton, right? Uh, and yeah, uh, you know, he. I'll be I'll be blunt. He has he has severe post traumatic stress in a way that, uh, that was the term I was looking for. Yeah. Yeah. I, but you know, he, 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 he would like, he, he might fight that. I, you know, I, um, it's a complicated thing.
0: Anyone reading the character for sure.
2: So he is deeply unsatisfied with life in America, and he's hoping that Ukraine and maybe also Svetlana, uh, can give him some kind of renewed sense of purpose. And uh, in, in, some, in some ways, that's kind of pathetic. In some ways, I find it very inspiring that because um, for him, the last time he remembers being happy, the, remember, the last time he remembers having direction was with her right before he deployed to Afghanistan. And the world has moved on, even if his mind hasn't. And that, that, that is the entry point I think readers find him at as they're riding the bus into Ukraine on page
1: one. So one of the things I appreciate is, I mean, we're with him, but also, right, the book takes detours into other points of view, and, and you have gone to some, like so, right? Like this moment, there's this, I mean, the beads, we asked you to read this, Pastor, because it's like, there's this, right, the beads being snatched from him by this child has like this great symbolic weight, and, um, by a child who's trapped in a, trapped in a war that's very different than the one that he came from, kind of as you were speaking about earlier. Um, and so that's a moment of agency that you see kind of like civilian life in all like these multiple forms during an air raid. And then, of course, also Svetlana um, and other kind of um, like activists with whom she works. Uh, so you, you kind of work to, despite, you know, we see things through PAX, but we also see the ways in which, He's like sometimes unable, he's unable to sometimes reconcile things in his head, but we have the information actually to kind of like get the portrayal, which is really, which is really great. Um, can you talk a little bit about like kind of portraying civilians and how you thought about doing that?
2: Sure, sure. No, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that that came through because that was, uh, even on draft one, page one, that was a huge intent of mine. Um, you know, I'm, I was keenly aware that I'm working in a, a, kind of a specific tradition Hemingway, Conrad, Graham Greene or, you know, Orwell, like white man from the West goes to a foreign country in the midst of conflict, hoping to help hope, you know, uh, and you know, I, I don't want to dismiss those authors. Their books have meant a great deal to me as a person and in some ways have helped shape them. But, you know, the world in the 21st century is very different. Uh, America's relationship to the world is very different and capturing uh, you know, formative experience in my life, frankly, in, in Iraq was was understanding that uh, my scalpelton was only there for 15 months, which is a not short time, but that for the Iraqis that we were living amongst, that we were working with, that we were fighting, this was everything. You know, th- this had been a decade of their life, and it would endure after we left. And that 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 has shaped every sentence I've ever written. Uh, so. Tapping into the Ukrainian perspective, tapping into the civilian perspective, was was vital. I I, I would not have sat down and, and tried to write this novel without pursuing those things. It's very it was very important to me. I to end on a Ukrainian note, for example. Um, I, I didn't when I first sat down to write this book. I wasn't quite sure, even though I knew it was would be largely told from Pax's perspective. I knew I would end from a Ukrainian character. I just didn't quite know yet. Uh, quite know which one yet so kind of providing these kind of short but powerful uh, glimpses into other characters perspectives not just about PAX but about these internationals showing up and and quote unquote helping um, I don't know I I think it just allowed me to layer this book uh, and populate it with some complexity and nuance that just, I don't I don't know if it would have been possible if I'd always stayed from PAX's perspective, uh, or, or always an American perspective.
0: Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Um, and listeners don't miss daybreak, which is, will be available in your local independent bookstore on Tuesday. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And,
2: uh, always a pleasure to talk with y'all. Thank you.
0: That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel, and on our website at FNFpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading.